0: All right, folks. I know 10 minutes went by like that. All the introverts in the room are like, no, it didn't. (laughs) Uh, It's great to see you guys again. Thanks for being willing to give this new app a try. We really do think it's going to be worth your while. If you know me, you know that I'm almost anti-technology. I try really hard not to be, but this has been a good thing. We've been using it internally for about a year, and it's benefited some of our life groups, our staff. So hopefully it'll be a good thing for you guys as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to spend probably the majority of our time in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to take a brief stopover in the book of Deuteronomy on the way, but I'll have those verses for you on the screen. So if you'd like to open your Bible to a place where you can stay open for a little while, I think I'd go to Matthew, or yeah, Matthew chapter 4 if I was you. It should be beginning in verse 1 there, the account of one of the accounts of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by God's enemy, the tempter, the accuser, Satan. Uh, this morning, we are going to be in our... Uh, final week of our Imago Day series, and uh, we're going to be looking at sort of the humanity of Jesus. That's sort of our overarching theme, because if we're going to talk about the image of God, we really need to get not just to theory, but we need to get down to brass tacks on how it has to do with our representative, our rabbi, our master, Jesus. So to that end, uh, we're going to try this morning to answer three questions that are related to the nature of humanity and the humanity of Jesus. But before we get there, I want to give you a quick review in case this is your first Sunday. Three weeks ago, we started this four-part series, and we ended our first uh, 40 minutes or so together by defining the Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that represents a doctrine of the church. The global church agrees Generally, I'm sure there's some one-offs here and there that don't agree, but in general, to call yourself a Christian means that you would align yourself or agree with the idea that we do bear the image of God in us as human beings. If that's a brand new concept for you, that's okay. We spent about 40 minutes three weeks ago talking about that together, and maybe that would be helpful for you to go back and reference. I think you'll still get a lot out of what we do today without that foundation laid, uh, but that's what we're talking about when we say Imago Dei, is the idea that the Bible tells us that every human being bears the image of God. And that has two really practical applications for us. The first is that human beings created in God's image are intrinsically valuable, meaning that the value in your life comes from something inside of you, not your ability to produce a product or to gain ground at work or to become more efficient or effective or productive or whatever— that because you bear the image of God, your life has value. And then second, that human life, regardless of perceived quality, so whether we think a life would be a quality life or not, that life is sacred. Whether or not that life deserves to be lived is not actually up to us. It's not really even up to the person who has that life. Because it is sacred, it has value to God, and therefore it is God's business whether or not a life has been given and whether or not it ought to be lived. So to get really practical here, um, the first part of the Imago Dei definition tells me that anybody that I encounter is valuable because they bear the image of God and I care about God. I think he's really valuable, supremely, eternally valuable. So if I see a sliver of him in you, that makes you valuable as well. But more than that, when I've sort of gotten angry enough or something to where I'm willing to disregard the image of God in you. The second part of the definition tells me that your life is also valuable to God, that it's God's business how I treat you, how I think of you, and the way that we interact. So that's the foundation. We talked about some of the other sort of ramifications of that. We followed a couple different paths the last two weeks, but I won't review that with you now. You can go back and access those in the Church Center app or on the website or in our podcast feed, lots of places where you can find that content if you'd like it. What I want to do before we jump into today's content is I want to go back just a little bit to close a loop that I chose to open. Um, Last week, we talked about how we get from scripture to culture. We talked about all the steps in between, maybe you remember that sort of seven-part process. And we reached the point where I felt like some of you were about to fall asleep, where we were talking about the relationship between doctrine and ethics, and I mentioned the Chain Chomp from Super Mario Bros. 64. Maybe you remember that. I think it's just Super Mario, actually. I don't think Luigi, or Green Mario, as we called him when I was growing up. Sorry, Luigi. I don't think Luigi shows up in that game, but some of you told me that you don't know what that is, and I'm so sorry for you. You're either too old or your parents thought that video games were gonna make you worship Satan. So I'm gonna show you the chain chomp. Here he is. This is the guy, okay? And he looks just like that, and you're thinking, nobody wants to play that video game. Let me tell you what, in like 1999, 2003, that range, this was like cutting-edge graphics. Here's the point that I made to you last week, that the post that holds the chain chomp into the ground is doctrine, and the chain chomp is like ethics. We need our ethics to be tethered to our doctrine, and I wanted you to be able to see it, so now you know. So if you have grandkids, next Thanksgiving, you can use the words chain chomp, and they'll be like, oh, you're cool, you're relevant. Again, it'll be really good for you, it'll feel really nice. Chain chomp, that's Mario. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Now you've seen it, all of us are on the same page. You know that I'm not maybe hinting at heresy or blasphemy? I hope I'm not. I think that's a pretty good, accurate representation. So this week, three questions. We've done two every other week, so we're gonna have to move a little bit faster, but I think we can do it. We did it last night at our Saturday service. Here's our three questions that we wanna answer today related to the image of God. First, what does it mean to be human? That's a pretty big question. We're gonna try to define it the way the Old Testament defines it, which is sort of the place where we find the origin of humankind. God speaks in Deuteronomy 6 to humanity, and he addresses all the different parts of humanity and therefore reveals to us what it takes to consider yourself a human being. So we'll talk about that. Number two, if we know what a human is, if we answer question one rightly, then we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus truly human? This is one of those ideas that gets thrown around a lot in church where we just go, oh yeah, yeah, God's 100% man, he's 100% God. Most of us really don't know, or Jesus is, I don't know if I said God was, Jesus is 100% man, 100% God. I don't know if most of us really understand what that means. Why that would matter, why that would be good news or bad news, why that's maybe a revolutionary idea, or maybe to us it's just sort of like we saw the veggie tales about the hypostatic union, and so we just accepted that that's the way it is. Jesus is 100% of both things, but we're going to talk about whether or not Jesus really is human according to our definition of humanity that we get from God, and then finally, how does Jesus then uniquely sustain our humanity? We've talked for several weeks about what it means to be made in the image of God and to bear God's image, how that impacts our relationships with one another, how that might change the culture of a group like this, like a local church. Today I want to get you to what this has to do with your individual faith in Christ, why this is a good thing for you, and why this might inspire faith in you as you come to understand it a little bit better. So in an attempt to answer the first question, what does it mean to be human, we'll go now to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The book of Deuteronomy is part of the first five books of the Bible which work together uh, we talked about that this morning in our basics class, That the, what we call the Pentateuch, those five books. You can sort of think of them as five different people that are all on the same podcast. They all get to speak into the microphone about the same order of events, the same principles and concepts about God. They have different perspectives. They exist in different times on the timeline, but they're all sort of one cohesive unit. This is the uh, Jewish or Israelite perspective. It's also the modern Christian perspective on how we interact with those things. So why does that matter to you? Because we read Deuteronomy 6 in its context as part of the opening of the Bible. It's all the things that God needs us to know about the beginning of things. And so specifically in Deuteronomy, God is not speaking about the beginning of time or the beginning of creation. He's speaking to his people at the beginning of their statehood, at the beginning of them becoming a nation. The people of Israel, if you don't know, started as a very small family. That family found their way to the nation of Egypt, where they grew and grew and grew. They eventually were enslaved because they were considered to be a political threat to the, and an ethnic threat to the Egyptian people. And so God set them free. That's the story that uh, comes to us in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. By the time we arrive at Deuteronomy, God's people have left Egypt behind. And now they're learning from God how to be a people, how to have laws and rules that benefit them, that lead them to their own flourishing. Because the only model that they have to rely on is the model of their slave masters back in Egypt. And God is unwilling for them to replicate the culture of Egypt in his name. He wants to set them on a new path and have them learn to live a new way. So right in the middle of all those rules, hundreds of laws and ideas and regulations and standards, God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 4, and he's speaking through Moses. So God has told Moses these things, and now Moses is the one who is talking to the people of Israel. And he says, Hear or listen, Israel. In other words, uh, God is going like this Hey, pay attention. He knows lots of rules, you're dozing off. So he's grabbing our attention, and he says, This is what you need to know that the Lord your God is one. Now, there's a part of that that's interesting because this is God demonstrating that he is a singular God, a unification of three persons. I'm not gonna teach you the doctrine of the Trinity today, but God is hinting at this, even in the Old Testament before we've really met Jesus. We're seeing evidence and hints that God is three in one. But I think the point that God is making for the sake of our discussion today is that he is unified, he is integrated. God is saying, when I am in your midst, you get all of me. And that helps us understand the demand that he makes in the next verse. He says, that's what you need to know about me is I'm one. Now, here's what I'm gonna tell you about you. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. So God is saying, in summary here, I am one, I am unified, I am integrated, therefore the kind of love and devotion and commitment that I expect from you is a oneness, a unified, an integrated, all the parts of you together worship of me. And because that's a really hard concept to understand, God breaks it down into pieces for us. He shows us here the three or four things that make up a human being. I'm going to move through this really quickly, and I'm going to share probably a little bit more with some of you than you care to know, but I know that this is sort of a new concept, so I want to make sure you know that this is truly anchored in the Scriptures. Here is how God defines a person according to this verse. When he demands our love for him, he uses these phrases... In parentheses, I have written for you the English transliteration of the Hebrew words that are used in this passage. Why does that matter? Because if you've never heard me say this before, reading the Old Testament in English is like someone else kissing your wife and telling you how it went. Uh, it is there is so much lost. In, I know it's gross, and I'm not recommending that. I'm just saying that we lose a lot in translation. We lose a lot of the experience and the feel of what Hebrew is doing. So I just want you to know these are actual concepts anchored in the Old Testament itself. God addresses, in English, what we would refer to as a heart, a soul... And your strength. What he's talking about when he says heart is the Hebrew word lab or the Hebrew word rach, which means either your mind or your spirit. You probably don't know this because you didn't go to Hebrew Union University in Cincinnati and then teach at seminary like my professors did, but they told me, and I believe them, that in the Old Testament world, the authors of the Bible had no concept for the separation of mind and heart. The division of a person was inside versus outside, it wasn't that there were these multiple facets within you as we now understand it. The Hebrew authors had not lived through the Greco-Roman philosophical age in which we started thinking about thinking and thinking about feeling and deciding which is good and which is bad and what to listen to and what to not. That undergirds all of Western civilization today. So I'm taking that one phrase and breaking it into two parts so that you can understand it. When God says in Deuteronomy 6, love me with all of your heart, he's talking about your mind, your decision-making center and your feelings center, the place where you process experiences emotionally. They are connected to each other, obviously. In the Old Testament, God speaks to them as one singular unit. Next, he talks about your soul. That's really easy because when God says soul, he means about the same thing that we do. The best explanation I've heard of what your soul does is that it's sort of the onboard computer in your life that integrates your mind and your spirit and your body so that you as a human being generally do what a human being is supposed to do. It's what helps you breathe without thinking about it, I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but we don't really think about breathing until we're not breathing anymore. Then we think about it a lot and we try to start breathing again. Uh, We don't have to tell our own hearts to beat. We don't have to tell all of our cells to replicate. We have no uh, conscious control over whether something like cancer grows or dies in our body. There are all kinds of things at a DNA level, but that also extends to the way our minds work. It also extends into our spirit. These things just work in a certain way. And so that soul is the onboard computer that keeps those things moving forward. I think what God is saying when he asks us to love him with our soul is to have our instincts, our urges, our cravings, the primal parts of us generally aimed at the work of his kingdom as well. And then finally, he talks about our strength. Strength or your basar or your dam, meaning your flesh or your blood. In the New Testament, the word flesh is negative. You've heard that in Paul's epistles. We don't want to be people of the flesh. We don't want to follow our flesh. In the Old Testament, the assumption is that your flesh is just your body and that God made your body and he made it good, and so it has the potential to be good or bad. In this particular case, God is not saying, I want you to love me with your evil fleshly desires. He's saying, your body will be a part of the way that you love me or not. So by demanding a holistic, unified, integrated love from us to God, God is also identifying the parts of us. He's telling us, if I want all of the love from all of the parts of you, then these are the parts of you with which you should love me. In other words, this is what it means to be a human. So how do we answer that first question? We say, to be human is to be an integrated mind and spirit and soul and body that also bears the image of God. That's a human being. And that's what you are. You're made of all of those things. Maybe you feel like those pieces of you are not integrated well. Maybe they've disintegrated, they've pulled apart, you're disconnected from them. I think specifically, this is another sermon for another day, but many Western Christians in evangelical churches have no idea how their body is supposed to help them love the Lord their God with all of themselves. We are often almost Gnostic in the way that we separate the spiritual from the physical, I think more often than not to our own detriment. But the point remains, God explains that there are four major pieces of us And if you were to fast forward in your Bible, which I don't have time to read to you today, you could find in Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus quotes the Shema, this part of Deuteronomy 6, and says the same thing. A man approaches him and says, what is the most important law? Thinking to catch Jesus in a trap. Oh, Jesus is going to indict himself, he's going to compromise himself, and we're going to get it all on camera, and it's going to go out on social media, and we're going to take him down, and everybody's going to know that he's a fraud. And so he lobs this grenade of a question at Jesus, which law is the most important, and Jesus says, the summary of all of the law, and even all of the prophets, he doubles down on what this joker's asking him, is that you would, and then he quotes this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's your spirit, that's your mind, that's your soul, that's your body. So that's what it means to be human. If we believe that that's what it means to be human, then we can ask ourselves the second question. Is Jesus truly human? Is Jesus an integrated mind, spirit, soul, and body who also bears the image of God? In order to answer that question, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4, which is where I asked you to turn a little bit earlier today. Now, you're probably familiar with this story. Oftentimes, when we work through The story of Jesus' life, whether we're teaching kids in Sunday school, or we're sharing the gospel with someone, or maybe our church is digging through a gospel, there's particular emphasis made on the fact that Jesus willingly submitted himself to temptation. If you don't know the order of events in Jesus' life, he was born, that's what we call Christmas, and then there's a period of time, roughly 30-ish years, where he just grows up, and he grows in wisdom and stature, and there's a few stories that we know about him staying and teaching at the temple, teaching a bunch of grown-ups about God's word, his parents can't find him, they spend some time in exile in Egypt, But once Jesus kind of breaks onto the scene and begins his ministry, he starts by being baptized. He's baptized by his cousin, John, who doesn't want to baptize him. He comes up out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him. God identifies him. The Father identifies him as the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And then immediately, Jesus leaves that baptism encounter and goes out into the desert outside of the city of Jerusalem. And that's where we find him. Now, when you've heard this story taught in the past... Very likely, it's been presented to you as this sort of spiritual clash of titans. Finally, God comes down to earth and pops his neck and cracks his knuckles and gets ready to go toe-to-toe with Satan. I think that's a pretty poor understanding of what's going on here. What I think is actually happening is that Jesus, as a human being, so spoiler alert, yeah, I think he's truly human, but I'm gonna let you see it for yourself. Jesus, as a human being incarnate, is gonna re-walk the road that Adam and Eve walked in Genesis 3 but instead of giving in to the tempter and following him into sin, Jesus will resist him at every turn. Which means he redoes what we failed to do in Genesis 3. He does it on our behalf and he enters into a life of ministry with perfect obedience. That's good. That's a fair interpretation. What I'm going to ask you to look for is something different from that. So just know that I can acknowledge that that's, that very much has to do with what's going on here. What we want to do is ask ourselves, what is it about the way that the tempter approaches Jesus... That shows us whether Jesus is human or not. You probably never thought about this. The ways that the, the tempter goes after Jesus are directly connected to Jesus' humanity. Let's see it for ourselves. Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, then, so after the baptism is what that means. Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, which is another word for desert, a desolate place in order to be tempted by the devil. Now this story is going to use a couple different words and it's all talking about the same person. The devil, Satan, God's enemy, the tempter, the accuser, all of those are the same guy playing the same role. And I say guy loosely, the devil is not a human, he's just a spirit. But that's what happens. So Jesus fasts for 40 days, that's verse 2, and for 40 nights and he became famished, which is what you would happen it would happen to you too if you didn't eat for 40 days. Out of being famished, the tempter came to him. At the end of this period of spiritual retreat, at the end of this long period of fasting, the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if, that's really important, because the tempter knows whether or not Jesus is, but he's just introducing a little bit of doubt. He's appealing to the human part of Jesus, if you really were who you said you were, then this is what you would do. He goes on to say, if you are the son of God, then prove it command these stones, which is all there really is in the desert, command these stones to become bread. Take care of yourself. Feed yourself. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Go ahead. What does it matter? Who's going to care? Nobody's even going to know. Just make yourself some bread and eat. You don't have to be this hungry. You can do it. Jesus rebukes him and says, it is written that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus rebuts him, which is already better than what the first man and the first woman did in the garden of eden he says no satan no i'm not gonna just because i can do it doesn't mean that i need to do it or that i should do it now here's the question i want you to try to see the answer to when satan comes to jesus in the wilderness is he tempting jesus divine nature is he actually tempting god can he tempt god is a good question to ask if you come to church on Saturday nights, we do stuff like this in Q&A, but I'm just going to leave you hanging for now. Do, is he, does, he, does he get tempted by Satan or not? I think an easy answer to that is that Satan could have tempted God, if he was able to do that, at any point. He didn't have to wait till Jesus came to the earth. Satan, being a spirit, has had access to God from the time that Satan was with God in eternity, before he was kicked out of eternity and made to be stuck down here on the earth where he has a very limited domain. So the answer to that is no. When he comes to Jesus and tempts him, he is tempting the humanity of Jesus And he starts where he starts in most of our lives, with Jesus' body. He begins with the flesh of Jesus. He says, aren't you hungry? Hasn't it been long enough that you haven't eaten? Wouldn't it be totally fine for you to just grab a little bit of that divine nature and zap these stones into warm, fresh-baked bread and feed yourself? And what does Jesus say? No, it's not God's will that I eat right now. If God wants me to eat, he'll provide me with food. What I'm going to be sustained by is the word of God, which is the promises of God, which tell me that God will provide for me when the time is right. Sure, Satan, you can see that I'm hungry. My body would certainly appreciate some food, but I'm not dead. God has not failed to meet me here, and therefore, I will wait on him. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, but I hear echoes of the tempter in Genesis 3, you know? He's saying to Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4, does God really want you to starve? If, if you were really the son of God, wouldn't, wouldn't, you, wouldn't this just be automatic for you? I, I hear that same tone, those same doubt-filled accusations that God makes to Eve in Genesis 3. Did God really say that? Did God really tell you that you couldn't eat whatever you wanted to eat in the garden? Doesn't that seem kind of restrictive and narrow-minded and old-fashioned of him? Why would he do something like that? Satan draws our attention to Jesus' body, and in so doing, helps us begin to answer the question, is Jesus truly human? So far, the answer would seem to be yes, but let's keep reading in verse 5. After this first encounter with the devil, the devil uh, took Jesus with him to Jerusalem, to the epicenter of the Jewish world, to this mountaintop where there's a temple built that used to be a tabernacle that is the same mountain where God met with all these different people at different times throughout the Bible, huge spiritual significance. And they get at the highest point of the temple, they stand up there, and Satan says to Jesus, again, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down. Why? Because... It's written, he tries to use scripture against Jesus now, it is written, Jesus, that he, the son of man, will command his angels, and with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And again, Jesus rebukes him in verse seven and says, once again, Satan, it is written that you are not to put the Lord God to to the test. Satan went after Jesus' body first, now he goes after Jesus' mind. He plays with what could be, what's possible Imagine Jesus. Just think about it. Do the math in your head. You could jump down. Nothing's going to happen. Why do you have to wait all these years for these people to reject you and accuse you and then eventually kill you? Just jump down into the middle of the temple, rip the curtain in half in the Holy of Holies, and pronounce your arrival. Let everybody know that you're here. Imagine what could happen if you would just take a leap of faith like that, Jesus. Now again, Satan is saying, if you are the Son of God, because he wants to and attack and undercut Jesus. Not because he really doesn't know if Jesus is the son of God or not. He knows that he is. In the same way that I might walk up to a man and say, you know, if you were really a man, you wouldn't let da 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 -da happen. Okay, I know he's a man, but I'm challenging that. I'm saying prove it. Prove it. Step out and show yourself. Show me who you are. Show me how strong you are. Again, Jesus rebuts Satan's attempts to sway his mind by reminding Satan that God has not given Jesus' abilities or access to power so that Jesus can boast in his own strength or his own mental ability. Again, I hear echoes of the Garden of Eden when the snake tempted mankind to reach out and grasp power for themselves. Imagine, I hear the tempter say, what you could know and what you could do if only you were willing to act on your potential. Just think of the possibilities. Satan goes after Jesus' body and then his mind. And again, we ask ourselves, is Jesus truly human? Well, he seems to be so far. Let's finish this reading in verse 8. Again, for a third and final time, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur which is a really kind of basic summary that it's easy to lose the significance of that. I mean, imagine standing on top of a peak so high that you can literally see whole kingdoms and whole nations. And Satan is saying, look at the industry of this nation and look at the military of this nation and look at the productivity and the wealth of this nation and the beauty of of the people of this nation and, and look at all these things. Can you believe that such a thing exists? Isn't it amazing, Jesus? Isn't it wonderful? Don't you want it? Wouldn't it be great if it was yours? He turns to Jesus and says, I will give you all of these things, which, my friends, implies that they are his to give, which informs our understanding of the amount of power that God's enemy has in the world. He says, I'll give these things to you. All you have to do is throw yourself to the ground and worship me. And what does Satan say? Not just you're wrong, but this time he sends him away. He says, go away, Satan, because it is written, God has spoken, you are to worship the Lord your God and to serve him only. And then, of course, if you're familiar with the story, as soon as Satan goes away, the period of temptation ends, and God, Yahweh, the Father, sends angels or messengers on his behalf to come and minister to the needs of Jesus. So Jesus ends up being proven right. God has not abandoned him, God has not turned his back on him, and God does not intend for Jesus to reach out and take power or food or access or whatever for himself, Christ is right to do what Adam and Eve could not do in Genesis 3, what you and I would have never done if we were there in the garden, which is resist the temptation of Satan and say, I will stay with God, I will go God's way, I will trust God's plan for my life. The final way that Satan tempts the Jesus is by tempting his human spirit. He appeals to Jesus' longing for glory. Maybe you don't know this about yourself, but you have a tendency to want glory or to be near to other people who have glory or to things that are glorious. It's the same thing that drives us to the edge of standing at the Grand Canyon and looking down and across and being in awe. It's the same feeling that we have on a sunny day looking out our window as we fly to Seattle and just seeing untold miles of glaciers and mountains and ocean. It's the way you feel when you meet a celebrity. It's the way you would feel if you ever became a celebrity. That sense of larger than life is a built-in craving for you. The place that you're supposed to go to have that craving satisfied is God. You were built and wired for him to fill that up to its maximum and exceed your expectations. And yet, like we talked about a few weeks ago in Romans 1, we have traded the right worship of the creator for worship of the creation instead. And that's what Satan is doing. He's saying, Jesus, why not just bow down to me and then I'll give you everything you want. Again, you don't have to go through this three years of persecution and teaching and rejection and pain and hunger and homelessness. You don't have to live through all of that. I'll give it to you right now. All I need from you is for you to acknowledge that I am your God and I am your Lord. He goes after the spirit of Jesus, tempting him. Jesus is tempted in body with hunger. He's tempted in mind with the possibilities of what could be and and the laws of physics and how he has control over those and the triumph that he could participate in if he would just throw himself down and reveal himself. And he's tempted in spirit by the glory that's offered to him. And these are the same three ways that we are tempted, and these are the dimensions of what it means to be a human. Now, we can also assume that because Jesus is still alive here in Matthew chapter 4, that his soul is also fulfilling its obligation. His onboard computer is keeping all of those other three pieces integrated and working. So how do we answer that second question? Is Jesus truly human? We say, yes, based on what we see here in his temptation in the desert with Satan, The only way that Satan could try to tempt him, the only things that Satan could even appeal to come from the humanity of Jesus Christ. He is himself an integrated body, mind, spirit, and soul that bears the image of God, but he is also divine because he is by nature both God and man. So that brings us to the last question. If we know what a human is and we believe that Jesus is that by the most basic definition that the Bible gives us, then we have to ask ourselves, how does Jesus' humanity benefit us? Does he sustain us? Does he meet us in our needs? Does him being a human and God somehow give us a theological or practical advantage in the world? Well, I think the answer is yes, and I want to show you three very practical ways that the Bible tells us that this is true. First of all, this comes out of Matthew 4, what we just read. Part of how Jesus sustains us is by being human himself. If you were to turn forward in your Bible to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, you would see that the author of Hebrews, and again, I just don't have time to go there with you today, but you can read it on your own. You would see that the author of Hebrews seems to believe, I think he's right, or she is right, we don't know who wrote it, but the author of Hebrews seems to believe that because Jesus was human, Jesus has the capacity to sympathize with you, to show you sympathy. Now, we know it is already within God's nature to be compassionate, he says so starting way back at the beginning of the Bible, and he continues to demonstrate that by being merciful and compassionate and understanding, and goodness is he long-suffering. He waits a really long time before he ever actually punishes anybody for their sin in the Old Testament. But we see in the person of Jesus not just a distant compassion for what seems to be going wrong, but based on his lived experience as a human being, he understands not just how bad it could be, but what it actually feels like to be you. That weird blend of wonderful and terrible that is your life, the highs and the lows, the Bible says that because Jesus was willing to leave heaven, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, and to be incarnated, connected, and and put into a human body, and to have lived a full human life into adulthood, that he has been tried and tested in every way that we have been, and that he is sympathetic to us in our weakness because he's actually walked through human life. God sustains us not just with doctrine, He sustains us not just with theory. It's good to know what he thinks. It's good to know how we ought to think. But to come down to brass tacks, where the rubber meets the road, Jesus is sympathetic to you and to your condition and to your skepticism and to what you've done wrong and to all of your broken relationships and to everything wrong that has been done to you because he also lived as a man. He can sympathize with us and he sustains us because he is fully human as well. How else does Jesus sustain us? Well, I wanna draw the last two points quickly from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Paul is talking about how wonderful and amazing Jesus is. He's really expanding the, the mental image that the early church has for how big of a deal Jesus is. Everybody has already agreed at this point that Jesus is the savior, he's the Messiah, that he's the king and he's our rabbi. Paul goes totally meta on the whole thing, almost getting into metaphysics here when he talks about what Jesus does and what he doesn't do. So I just want you to see it for yourself. And then we're going to draw our first conclusion from this passage, which is our second way that Jesus sustains us. Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So as a human, he bears the image of God in the Imago Dei, but the fact that he is divinity incarnate as a person also means that he is the God we can know. He rightly bears God's image as a person, but he also bears God's image as God, because he is God, which is really exciting to me. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, Why? Because all things that are in heaven and on earth were created in Jesus. All things, whether they are visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions. This speaks a certain irony back into Matthew chapter 4, that Satan would try to offer Jesus these kingdoms that, according to Paul, are only held together and were only created by him. They already belong to him. He doesn't need Jesus to offer them to him. Paul goes on. He says that whether these things be principalities or powers, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Jesus himself is before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the church, the body, as well as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself may become first in all things. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the Son. There's your doctrinal evidence for what we call the hypostatic union, the fullness of God's nature in Jesus and the fullness of human nature in Jesus. The fullness of God dwelt in the Son, verse 20, and through the Son, now all things are reconciled to God by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether these things be things on earth or things in heaven. The second way that Jesus sustains us is that he holds reality together. I don't know which Marvel movie it is because I don't really watch Marvel movies on purpose. It's sort of like golf. If it's on, I'll sit on the couch and absorb a little bit, and then I'll go do something else that I would rather do. There's one Marvel movie, I think, where one of the heroes, I think it's Captain America, is trying to keep a helicopter from flying away, and so he just grabs it with his hand because he can do that, and then he grabs the helipad with the other hand. I think it's him, and he holds the helicopter. The helicopter's trying to fly away. It's trying, I think a bad guy's inside, probably, or they stole the, whatever the in the suitcases that they all need in that movie. And so he's trying to, you know, and and he's strong enough that he's holding these two things together that want to be apart, And that's the mental image that I get when I think about Jesus holding together reality. I don't know how familiar you are with sort of the theory on the origin of the universe, but generally, most people who have studied where matter came from and what's happening in the world would agree that at a molecular level, everything is moving out from a central point all the time. This is part of what informs the Big Bang Theory. It's one of the most important pieces of evidence, and it's something that no one's ever observed, so that can be kind of a flimsy theory for that reason. But we see at the physical, molecular level of all things that things are always expanding, they're always moving out. What your Bible is telling you is that Jesus is there acting against that natural force, that he is literally holding together the fabric of the universe, That the the movement and the momentum and the inertia of sin is that all things would tear apart and disintegrate and dissolve. That's the reason that Jesus has to tell you as an individual to bring your integrated self to him in worship. Because at the most basic level, it is natural for you to only bring him bits and pieces and parts because your life is moving so fast that you're always spinning out from the center and tearing apart at the seams. Jesus says you're going to have to choose to go a different way than that. God says that in Deuteronomy. Jesus echoes him in Matthew And here we see Paul saying that the way that you can do that, the way that you can have any hope at all of bringing an integrated self to Jesus to worship him with all of yourself is to rely upon the Christ who is underneath the foundations of reality holding it together. That he is the one keeping the helicopter and the helipad from screaming apart at high speeds. That he is holding all things. This is part of how he sustains us. For you and I, our human weakness is not a choice, and it's probably the thing that we like least about ourselves, whether it's our body or our mind or our spirit. Something or all of those things demonstrate brokenness in our life, and so we kind of limp through life wishing that things were better and asking Jesus to change those things. When Jesus took on humanity... It did not make him weaker in the sense that he lost his ability to do whatever he wanted as a divine person. He chose to let go of those kinds of things to come down to the world that he already is holding together at the molecular level and live a life with you and I. What that means is, again, this is not an abstract concept. Jesus isn't just sitting on his throne in heaven, pinching his fingers and going, okay, we're just going to hold reality together for a little bit longer, and I can do other stuff over here. I just need to remember to not let this go. He is intimately and personally involved in the details of your life. And if it feels like they are spinning out of control, they may be spinning out of your control, but they are not spinning out of his control. They're nowhere close. He holds reality together. All things that are are within his hands, and that should help us take a deep breath once in a while. That should inform how important we think we are, how critical it is that we only ever make the best possible decisions in life, because what could go wrong if we slipped up even one time? This informs the way we treat our spouses, it informs the way we parent our children, it informs how we represent Christ to the world. We talk all the time about grace and mercy and then do our best to present perfection. Christ has already presented perfection. He knows what he's doing. Your life is going to be a mess. It's never outside of his control. He knows it intimately. Paul goes on, and this is where we'll finish today, verse 21 of Colossians 1. He says, you know, that's all good and well, that Jesus is doing that kind of from a distance, it seems like, or behind the scenes of our lives, holding all things together. But now let's talk about you and I. You were strangers to God. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, you were enemies of God, even if you were christened as a baby. You, by nature of your sin, your human nature, separated you from God. It pulled you away from him at lightning speed, and you have expressed this through your evil deeds. Your mind has been bad, but once you got old enough to live, you started living out that evil that was playing around in your head. But what has God done? Now he has reconciled you to himself in spite of yourself by his physical body through death to present you as holy, to present you as without blemish, to present you blameless before God. If you don't know that, let me just say it in layman's terms. Jesus is working on you so that he can stand you up in front of God someday and look and go, look at what I did. Look what I made out of nothing. Huh? You, you remember God? Remember who this guy was? Enemy, distant, stranger, wicked mind, evil deeds. Remember all that? Look what I did. Look what my blood was able to do. That's where we're headed. That's the road that we're on if we remain in the faith. If we are established in the faith, if we are firm in the faith, if we don't shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard, which is not just a -a once-in-a-lifetime choice, it is a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute choice in your life. Will you take the next step with God, or will you forsake the gospel and go the way of the world? This gospel has been preached all over creation under heaven, and Paul says that he himself is a servant of that gospel. Paul's saying, this is the whole point for me. This is everything. This is the thing I serve. This is the idea that drives me to being willing to be stoned and at the edge of death and never have any money and travel all around and never be married and never build a family. All of this is worth it because this gospel is true. This gospel that says what? That we have been reconciled to God by Jesus' spirit, right? No. By his physical body, my friends, The humanity of Jesus is central. It is critical to his saving work on the cross. If it has ever felt like a waste of time to you that Jesus would choose to come to the earth and inhabit the life of a person and be killed as a criminal on a cross, Paul is saying it wouldn't have worked if it was only spiritual. In order for Jesus to be a substitute for you and I, in order for Jesus to be blameless in the flesh, in real human skin and bone, he had to walk through life. And unlike All of us who have ever existed, he did it the right way. He did not sin and therefore at the moment of his death, he didn't have any sins he had to pay for and so his death could pay for yours. That's the way that works. If he had sinned even one time, he would have no standing before God. He would pay for his own sin with his death, but he wouldn't be able to pay for us. It is fascinating to me and it is not lost on me that Jesus' physical body is key, according to Paul's theology, to how we are saved. It is the humanity of Jesus. It is the flesh and the blood, the mind and the spirit, the body integrated by a soul that God demands in exchange for what we have done wrong. And Jesus meets that demand. This is not a simple or easy or cute exercise in God's love. Jesus didn't come to the earth, grit his teeth for a few years, mostly stay disengaged with humanity, and then make his way back to heaven and hooray, everything's all good and hunky-dory. Jesus suffered every moment by being a human being constantly berated with temptation. I don't know if you know how temptation works. When I was a kid, a lot of times I would hear about Jesus being fully God and I would go, big whoop on the temptation then. Huh? If he's fully God, he couldn't really be tempted. So it was easy for him. He could be a little nicer to me. Huh? I'm not fully God and I tend to get tempted a lot and I give into it. What I didn't understand was that by Jesus being fully God and fully man, yes, he resisted temptation, but think of it this way. If I'm on a diet and I go to the Alaska State Fair, I sit in traffic for nine hours, and I go to the Alaska, and it's assumed, I go to the Alaska State Fair, and I get there, and I've decided I'm not going to eat anything fried or sweet. Well, you would probably tell me to stay home, but I'm going to go anyway, and I'm going to smell a funnel cake cooking somewhere at the fair. I want that, yes, okay, those who are not on a diet said amen. Uh, I want that funnel cake. I want to eat it. I'm tempted to eat it. I've committed not to eat it. I know that it's not good for me. I've made my decision. What are the only two ways that that temptation goes away for me? The only two ways to stop being tempted by, well, I guess there's three. Number one is the funnel cake stand could blow up, but we're going to assume that doesn't happen. So the two that could happen are, number one, I either go home and I leave the place where the temptation has come from, or number two, I give in to the temptation and eat the funnel cake. That's the only two ways that temptation can resolve. For Jesus to have been tempted every moment of his 33 and a half years and yet to have not sinned means that he was hanging out next to the funnel cake stand on a diet 24-7. That temptation did not come and go. There's no part of his spiritual being, his divine nature, that occasionally just made him numb to the desire to sin. Every ministry context that he was ever in, weak people, desperate for change, willing to believe something radical, he could have manipulated, he could have abused, he could have set himself up to be a king on the earth. He could have met every physical expectation that anybody ever had for him, and yet every single second of his life, he did not leave the fair and go back to heaven to escape, and he did not give in to temptation and remove temptation that way. He stayed in that tension constantly. You will never know misery like that. You will never know what it means for the fullness of your person to be constantly drawn to evil every active second that you are awake and asleep, and for you to resist that. Yes, Jesus loves you, but when you read stories about his kindness and his miracles, don't forget that underneath all of that goodness and kindness and that will to do what is right and that desire to be obedient is the incredible, endless, suffering tension of temptation. That informed him. That's why his heart breaks when he meets people who have given themselves over to it. It's not an abstract principle. It's not just because sin makes people God's enemies. He is feeling what it takes to resist, and he has empathy for you who can't do it. He gets why you can't do it. He understands why this is such a breaking thing to try to live a Christian life. And he holds it all together, and he's building his church. That's the point that Paul wants us to understand from these two verses. That the work that he's doing is not just holding the universe together at a distance. It is that he has a plan. That the reason he is willing to endure that kind of long-suffering, the reason he wants to sympathize with your weakness, the reason that reality is worth holding together is because his church is the vehicle for reconciliation. It is the way that we move from tempted people to whole people. It's the only way. My friends, I know Christians who would love to throw the church away and keep Jesus. Jesus decided that's not going to work that way. He said, the place you'll go to get me and to get my teaching and to get my people and to be in my body is in here. So you can spend your time sniping it from outside and acting like you've built something somehow better, or you can get down in the mud and let's fix it together. Let's work together toward an objective. Let's believe every time we gather that God's going to do something because he is doing something, because we don't have to gather to get him to do something. What is he doing? He's sympathizing with you personally. He's holding reality together. He's building his church. He's not going to stop. Jesus sustains you out of his humanity. The last thought that I want to give you today, and I hope this is helpful to you, is related to the unification of God and man. So that's just, I want to talk about how, how did God glue those two things together? And this is where we'll answer our third question. The unification of God and man that happens in Jesus is probably the least understood and most significant part of your Christianity. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. So obviously God and man are joined at Christmas. We talked about that during Advent. I told you, to me, I think that that happens at conception in Mary's womb. The Spirit of God is present. Never before has the total person of God and the total person of a human been bound like that never happened before but more importantly than that Jesus maintains that union he's fully God he's fully man all the way through life he goes to the cross he's resurrected but have you ever considered that when Jesus returns to heaven at the ascension he does not take off his humanity and hang it up on the heavenly coat rack outside the throne room because of Jesus incarnation because he is is not was is truly human when he came to the earth and paid for your sin, and opened the way into unity with God, he decided by doing that, that now, forever and always, part of the eternal, preeminent trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, part of that would now be human. Do you understand what that means? That was always only God, God before time, God who had no needs, God who was in perfect community, God who made all things, It's almost offensive when you think about it that way. I mean, I like my life, and I like all of you, but how dare God taint himself with me? Not just to know me, not just to pay for my sin, but to pull humanity through his body and blood into union with him. In heaven, now, he stands. He he intercedes on our behalf, and he's still human. He intercedes on our behalf, and he still has scars in his hands and his feet. He intercedes on our behalf and he has skin and he has bones. And maybe you always thought that God and the Holy Spirit did too. No, before Jesus is incarnated, God in essence is only spirit. What does this mean to you? It means that when the Apostle Paul says that neither height nor depth nor principality nor strength nor good or ill can separate us from God, he's not just talking about your position in heaven. He's not just saying no one's ever going to move your sticky note with your name on it from the not guilty to the guilty side. That's important, but that's just the beginning. What Paul is saying is there is not a scalpel that exists on earth or in eternity that can ever cut apart the nature of God and man now that it has been bound in Christ for eternity. My friends, there is no stronger invitation that God can make to you. He is not just trying to change you. He is saying, come into me where you will find yourself. I am the perfect human life. I am the life lived righteously. I am the death died in your place. I'm not just trying to sell you this thing in the checkout line at the grocery, right? And you're doing other stuff and you see salvation on the shelf and you go, I've seen a lot of that. Maybe I'll take that seriously. Maybe I'll try that sometimes. Jesus is saying the beginning of life and creation and reality and all things that matter is bound up in me and now it can be yours. You don't have to just limp your way through life. You don't have to try that hard to be good. I will unify you with God. I did it myself, and now the way is open to you. So how does Jesus sustain us? Fully human himself, he sustains us by holding our reality together and by building his church. That means your life, your death, your world, your spiritual life, they're all in his hands, and you can trust him. And he's not at a distance. He's sympathetic, and he's close, and he cares, and he wants you to come to him He wants you to meet him in the middle of all of that. I know that probably feels like a seminary lecture. That was my fear all week, that we would just throw ideas at you that are maybe a little too much for a Sunday morning. But what I hope you're grasping is, is that all of the metaphysical, spiritual stuff that Jesus did was for you. It's not a science class. It's so that you and he can be close and together. It's all you'll do in eternity, and it can start now in your life if you'll come to him, or if you'll return to him, or if you'll reopen yourself to him. It's what he wants for you. So my simple application for you is faith. That's what Paul says. He says, if all these things are true, then may we have faith. May God give us faith, which is a gift. May he grow our faith in him. May he always be blowing the walls of the cage off in our mind where we keep our little image of God. And may we constantly be amazed at the mystery and the power and the love of the incarnate God-man Jesus. That's what I want for you. So I'm gonna pray that for you and ask you to pray for me. And then we're gonna move on to the last bit of our service here. Father, thank you for your word. I hope that in some ways it's been clarifying and helpful today. Uh, I also hope in some ways that maybe it's been a little bit stretching for some of us to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus isn't just a nice guy who did a nice thing that can get us out of hell, but that the very fabric of the cosmos was being rent and torn and sewn together in new ways as he became a person, as that person died and God died with him, and as he returned to life and conquered death once and for all. Father, as we worship you and we think about what it means to carry your spirit in us, to bear your image. I pray that you would challenge us to a place of joy, that this would be exciting again, that it would be compelling again, that it would be inspiring again, to know the work that you have done to draw us and to cleave us to yourself. We trust you, God, to work in our midst. We trust you to grow our faith as a church, to be willing to step out and away from our comfort zones because of all that you've done for us. We love you, God. We ask that you work in us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.